From Salesforce Studios, this is Blazing Trails. Welcome to Blazing Trails. I'm Laura Woods from the Salesforce blog. Today, we're joined by journalist, author, and empowerment advocate, Gretchen Carlson. In 2016, Gretchen helped pave the way for the Me Too movement with her historic sexual harassment lawsuit against Roger Ailes, the former CEO and chairman of Fox News. Gretchen is now putting her network, knowledge, and personal experience to battle in the fight to reform institutions that have historically kept women silent. This was one of the most powerful talks at Dreamforce 2019 for me, so I can't wait to present it to you here. But before we hand it over to Gretchen and moderator and senior editor at Fortune, Ellen McGirt, a quick word about WordPress VIP, who is making this show possible. WordPress VIP is the digital publishing solution that powers the world's top media companies as well as marketing platforms for some of the best known brands like Time and Facebook. Later on in this episode, you'll hear more of our conversation with their CEO, Nick Gernert. And now let's listen to Gretchen speaking with Ellen about the path to gender equality. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Gretchen Carlson. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. Railblazer. I have so many things to talk about. And we were chatting backstage like like journalist sisters. Sometimes I wish that we could tape what we talk about in the green room because at Cedar World, the energy really happens. And we were also commenting on your your beautiful ensemble today. Oh, well, thank you so much. I love wearing pants. (laughs) That's a Fox (laughs) News joke right there. Yeah. yeah. So I want to start with what you're working on now, because I think it's so incredibly important and it sets the stage to everything that's happened. Your work on Capitol Hill. You are now an arbitration expert. Yes. Usually when I talk about arbitration, the audience has sort of a glazed look on their face. They're like, what the hell is she talking about? So let me just ask uh, members of the audience, do you know if you have an arbitration clause in your employment contract? Yeah, a few hands. Um, So normally people don't know this, as I didn't really pay attention to it either, because, listen, you don't expect to get into any kind of dispute when you start a new job. And the problem with arbitration, it's become incredibly prevalent. 60 million Americans have them in their employment contracts now. What it does is it basically does not allow you to go to court if you have any kind of dispute. Now, this is incredibly important for sexual harassment cases, which arbitration was never intended to solve, because it silences the victim, who's usually the woman, right? And so here are the problems. You go to complain. The company goes, we have an arbitration clause with her. Nobody will ever know about this because arbitration is secret. So now you go to the case. You don't get the same amount of witnesses. You don't get to to do the same amount of depositions. Um, There are no appeals. The arbitrators tend to be retired judges and lawyers who may not be that adept at understanding harassment issues. And you might get some sort of a paltry settlement. You never work again. You can tell nobody whatever happened to you. And the worst part is the perpetrator gets to stay on the job and keep harassing and getting a big paycheck because nobody knows about it. That's what I'm trying to change on Capitol Hill. I'm trying to pass the ending Forced Arbitration Act of sexual harassment so that women in our country are no longer muzzled and handcuffed and they have a voice. So bring us some of the tales from behind the scenes here, because I know (laughs) you've been covering politics a long time, bipartisan works, and it seems like you've got real support. So... 
after covering politics for so long, I've learned that unless the bill is bipartisan, it never has a chance in hell of passing. And by the way, sexual harassment is an apolitical issue. Before somebody decides to harass you, they don't ask you what party you're in. And this is why we should all care about this issue, and that's what I've been telling members of Congress as I've been walking the halls over the last couple of years. So my sponsors are Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican in South Carolina, and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat, New York. And in the House, Representative Sherry Bustos, Democrat, Illinois, and Representative Elise Stefanik, Republican, New York. Um, we first introduced the bill in both houses, um, in both chambers, at the end of December 2017. We just reintroduced the bill in the House in May, and I testified uh, before the House committee. I'm very optimistic that this bill will now be again introduced in the Senate and that we will actually see this potentially pass. And it's narrow enough in scope that you yes, feel... Yes, it's a really important point. Thank you, Ellen. So this is only with regard to sexual harassment and arbitration. It's a three-page bill, and so it's very easy to understand, and this is the way in which we can try to get Republicans on board to support it because they tend to be against getting rid of arbitration. Right. And so that's how I'm hoping to get the, the, the bipartisan support. Um, sometimes if bills are too big in scope, you're, you're just never going to get the support, and you simply introduce them and they vanish. So we should talk about the journalism that you're doing now. Yes. You're, you're the, can you, first of all, let's, maybe we should talk about the book. Be, be Fierce is excellent. I'm sorry I can't get you to sign it because I have it on my Kindle version. Okay. But it, it is excellent. It is incredibly well reported. Thank you. It's intersectional in scope. You've spoken to women who are very different from yourself, people who don't have the kind of platform that, that you do. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you took that project on and what you learned while you were writing it? Well, after I jumped off the cliff on July 6, 2016 and filing my lawsuit, I felt like I was completely alone. This was 15 months before the Me Too movement exploded, um, before the Harvey Weinstein allegations came to light. And I realized soon thereafter that I wasn't alone because I was buoyed by so many other women across this country who started reaching out to me and sharing with me their stories of pain and, and agony and shame. And I realized, oh my God, this is a pervasive epidemic. And it crosses every socioeconomic line in every profession. And I didn't even realize that when I filed my case. And so I realized I had to do something to honor these women because they all said the same thing to me. Thank you for being the voice for the voiceless. And I thought, I don't want them to be silent anymore. I want people to know that this is a pervasive problem. And so that was really the genesis of Be Fierce and the book, was sharing these very painful stories and then also providing a playbook, chapter four, my 12 points of what every woman or man should do if they find themselves facing harassment in the workplace. Um, so it was not only um, giving truth to these stories mm -hmm. to honor these women, but also moving forward as to how do we fix this. So we're gonna, we're gonna get to some of your tips um, in a minute. But really what we're talking about here is power, aren't we? Oh, yeah. And, and when, when there is a lack of transparency, when everything happens in secret, the entire culture is robbed of the opportunity to see their best and brightest thrive. Well, we don't even know. There's no way to know how many women in this country and men have been subjected to harassment and are forced out of their jobs and never work again. I mean, it could be, I know it's thousands, 
But I don't know if it's 100,000. I don't know if it's 500,000. I don't know if it's a million. Should we do a show of hands? I mean, we, well, you know, it's, who, it's scary. Who here either has been or knows someone who has been a victim of sexual harassment in the workplace. And my hand is up. Yeah. Not to show you what a hands up looks like, because right. it's also me. So, so the bottom line is the majority of the women, in fact, more than a majority, I'd say 99% of the women who reached out to me, after they found the courage to come forward, and by the way, did nothing wrong, they never work in their chosen profession ever again, and that is outrageous. And I know that I'm not okay with that, and I don't think most Americans are okay with that now that we're talking about this issue. And that's what gets me up every morning along with this bracelet that says, be fierce, that I look at every single day. Because some days, I gotta be honest, I wake up and I think, I don't really have it in me today. <laughs> and then I look at this and I think about all those women who've been silenced and it, it, it gets me going again um, to get out there and, and do everything I can every day to fix this. So it happened to you, it happened to me, it happened to many people. What have you learned about getting people for whom this has not happened, for whom this is invisible, to care about this issue? Mm. It's a great question. It's why I went on a college campus tour to get to our young people. Okay. Because, you know, we do a fantastic job of raising our girls in our society to empower them. I mean, in fact, girls are outpacing boys in, in certain areas of academia and in certain areas of, of college degrees. But what we don't tell them is what they more than likely are going to face when they get into the workplace, which is not being paid fairly, not getting the same promotions, not getting a seat in the boardroom. And oh, by the way, you're probably going to be sexually harassed at some point as well. And so I think we need to be really open and honest with our young woman about that. But here's the real key. We need to get to our boys young. We need to get to them to teach them how to respect women so that when they get into the workplace, they treat their future female colleagues in the same way in which they might look at their mom or their sister. And so that has been the eye-opening experience for me, that this issue is really about boys and men. It's not really about women. Right, that's right. So you're a documentarian now. Yes. Tell us about that. It's been really fun to go back to long-form TV. I signed a production deal with A&E Networks, and so far I've done three production or documentaries for them. A&E, um, yes. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, early on in my career in local news, when I worked in Cincinnati, I was part of the investigative I-team, and... Um, that was back when local news stations had a lot of money. <laughs> and yeah. we had the ability to spend a lot of time working on investigations. And you put, to, you know, put together a seven to 10 minute television piece, which is an eternity in television talk. Right. And so, you know, after doing um, my own show for, for so long and an ensemble live show, um, which everything's live and quick and, you know, it's done with, it's been really rewarding for me to go back to doing long form television and really taking the time and spending a lot of time on the interviews. The first documentary was a two-hour special called Breaking the Silence, and I went all across the country last summer and interviewed women that were part of this forgotten group. So fast food workers from McDonald's who had faced right. harassment, um, a firefighter, um, a, a woman who worked at a nursing home. I wanted to pay tribute to these women that not many people were talking about. The reality is that Sexual harassment is not just about well-known journalists and Hollywood actresses. 
the majority of these situations are happening to just lovely people all across our country who don't have that kind of national platform. And so I wanted to, to do them justice with their stories. Um, the last two documentaries I've worked on are totally in a different direction. One was on the Nexium cult that was in yeah, New York State. Yeah. And uh, that was fascinating. Catherine Oxenberg, who was a well-known actress, and she's also part of royalty, I think, from Europe. Um, she used to be on the show Dynasty from years ago, and her daughter was ensconced in this cult, and she uh, you know, worked incredibly hard, again, as sort of a, a one-man band mm -hmm. trying to bring it down. Um, and then my latest documentary was on the college admission scandal, which was very enlightening, and I have two teenage kids, so I learned a lot myself, and hopefully we gave a lot of great information to our viewers. Are you seeing a pattern emerge in the kinds of stories that you're attracted to now that you, now that you have earned this, this, uh, this different sort of platform? Yeah, you know, listen, I've always been a big supporter and believer in doing stories about women. Um, but it's been great, I think, to, to have the platform to do longer longer form stories. And I've got a tremendous amount of other ideas out there. So I'm constantly pitching new things and uh, coming up with new concepts. So I'm not going away anytime soon. Oh, I, don't, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Let's go back to Anoka, Anoka Minnesota, where <laughs> you grew up. I think... Has anyone ever heard of that town, by the way? Oh, you have? Anoka, yeah. Okay. Do you know it's the Halloween capital of the world? Yes. That was our claim to fame growing up. We were so proud of it. And how does one become the Halloween capital of the world? I know. Good question. Thank you. So in the 1940s, apparently on the eve of Halloween, teenage kids would do like horrible things back then, like toilet paper, you know, homes and yeah, yeah. tomato cars. And, and my town was the first to come up with family programs that kept the family together um, so that kids were not out getting in trouble. And Congress actually gave um, this, this title to my hometown as the Halloween capital of the world. That's adorable. Yes, it I is. I did not know that. Yes. So it's a huge, you know, celebration every year. There's a big parade. I've actually been the grand marshal at one point in time. And um, yeah, yes. no, it, it was a, and it was a great place to grow up. Listen, I, I try to transfer my Midwestern sensibilities to my New York life and to my kids every single day because um, I, I feel blessed to have grown up there. It, there were some challenges. Your house was taken away by a tornado. Part of it, point. yes. So. And the mascot at my high school actually is the tornadoes because we've had so many tornadoes there. <laughs> Living with a level of menace that not everyone does. You were also a um, virtuoso violinist. Mm -hmm. You still As play? A child. I don't. Uh, I know. My dad wishes that I did. Um, I burned out when I was 17. I practiced, you know, four to five hours a day and... It was really my career as a kid, but it taught me immense discipline, and, right. and that's something that's carried through with me for my whole life, and I really can thank um, all of those hours practicing for even my advocacy work now and my journalism work, because I just have this fire in my belly yeah. um, that I developed from, from that talent. And it got you into the pageant business. <laughs> well, it got me, yes, because 50% of your points in the Miss America competition were based on talent. My mom was very upset that I had quit the violin. And so that was her way to try to get me to continue playing the violin. And uh, the pageant, uh, the Miss America pageant, the, the, beauty, the beauty circuit actually was very, was very good for you. Well, I ended up working really hard. I was a student at Stanford and Oxford at the time and right. dropped out um, to pursue that that goal. Um, it happened, you know, a lot of luck was involved. Um, but, you know, that experience is really what got me into television. I know. My life has worked in very mysterious ways. I was supposed to be a musician, then I thought I was going to be a lawyer, then I ended up 
doing Miss America, like what? Because I'm short, have you noticed? Um, violin had never won. I mean, there were all these barriers along the way. But then that got me into television because I was doing interviews on a daily basis and I was on one of these shows where they, they tried to pull a practical joke on me. And afterwards, agents called and said, have you ever thought about doing TV? I was like, no, not really. But then they were like, if you can do that, you can try to do television news. You know, I watched some of your early um, post-pageant win interviews, media interviews, and it struck me then that the broadcast media is an, can be an ugly gauntlet. Mm -hmm. I didn't like some of the questions they asked you. You were very poised. You were fast on your feet. But there was a... There was a tinge of ugliness there already. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's like my resume evaporated overnight. Yeah. And um, the they thing was... They asked awful questions. Yeah, um, especially a female reporter, which is really That's what I'm referring to. And um, I've never forgotten her name because she tried to take me down, Penny Crone. And she Noted. dubbed me the... Um, she, dubbed, she dubbed me the smart Miss America, but it wasn't a compliment. Um, she then tried to make me look stupid. And she asked me a series of, of about 20 questions in the middle of a press conference, my first one. And she got to number 19, which was, have you ever done drugs? And number 20 was, have you ever had sex? In front of a national audience. I was 22 years old. It was pretty humiliating. And I'm not a big believer in revenge. <laughs> However, <laughs> 10 years later, I happened to be covering a live event in Bryant Park in New York City. And I saw her. Have you ever had moment, one of those moments in your life yes. where you're like, should I? Could I? Well, I dug deep and I decided I'm going to go up to her and say something. So I got done with my live reports. I marched over to her. I put out my hand and I said, hi, Penny. I'm Gretchen Carlson. You probably don't remember who I am. But about 10 years ago, you tried to take me down. And I just want to let you know right now that I'm a correspondent for CBS News and you're not. <laughs> and then I marched away as fast as I could. But you know what? It felt really, really good. <laughs> and it's really unfortunate that man or women reporters feel uh, the need to try and, and take people down like that. It stays with you for life, yeah. that sense of humiliation. Mm -hmm. And it was very cathartic for me to approach her and, and say that and sort of, you know, wipe it away from my history. You know, I'm so glad I asked. Um, but when you think about work and power and position as a zero-sum game, where there's, excuse me, there's only enough room for one, then things get vicious. You know, we're, I think one of the things that's, that's come up in almost every panel I've been on and every conversation I've had is a new way of thinking about capitalism and business and purpose that would allow for... Um, room for everybody, that we can be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's really the kinds of power that we're talking about. Like, she had to take you out. Well, in her, I mean, in that's, her mind, of course. you know, but I think, I think what you're saying is that we sort of have these token women in, in right. high positions, and they then they, they try to straddle the fence of, should I be in the boys' club, because that will help me keep my job, or should I help the women underneath me, but then to the detriment of being in the boys' club, right? So that's easily solved. Listen. Just pay women fairly, promote them, and put them in the boardroom. I don't know what's so tough about it. I mean, honestly, and, and, I, and I credit Salesforce with, with being a leader in that, uh, but it's just not that tough to pay women 
the same salary that you're paying men. Great Britain now is publicizing salaries, and that may be where we have to go yeah. to make it happen. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing with why I'm fighting so hard on Capitol Hill to eradicate arbitration. Some companies have been brave enough to understand that this is not a passing fad and that we are here to stay, and we're going to keep fighting for women to have equal rights, okay? Now, Microsoft took arbitration clauses out of their contracts on their own, federal legislation not forcing them. Then Uber, Lyft. Then the Google walkout happened. Look at the power of one person that, that grows into a national day, international day. Google then took arbitration clauses out. Then Facebook, then Airbnb, then eBay. These are companies that are brave enough to be ahead of the curve and say, we actually want to do something that's you know, going to make it an equal playing field for men and women in the workplace. Others we may have to force with federal legislation. But it's my hope that companies will have meetings internally and decide to take this on instead of waiting to be forced. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And publishing diversity numbers really helps too. Yes. More data, more analysis, more sharing of best practices. And the McKinsey report just came out a couple of days ago. Five years they've been doing this yep. to showcase uh, women's achievement in the workplace. And the promising news was that there has been an uptick in the number of women in C-suites. Yes. Um, but in, with regard to diversity, not so much. It's Latina Equal Pay Day. It's, I know. What is it, like 10 years, 10 years later than, um, the, the 10 days later than it was last yes, year. But we need, uh, again, I, I clap because we need to be talking about this. Yes. It's all about continuing the conversation. That is what has kept harassment under wraps, you know, for so long is because arbitration's keeping it secret, settlements keeping it secret, and then just the fact that we don't really want to talk about those issues, right? The more conversation we have about this, the more we fix it. We're going to take a quick break now to bring you a conversation with the CEO of WordPress VIP, Nick Gernert. WordPress VIP is the leading provider of enterprise WordPress, and they power companies like Facebook, Spotify, and others. My colleague, Matt Jaffe, sat down with Nick at Dreamforce to discuss how his company is approaching important topics like the future of work and digital transformation. How do you guys see the future of work unfolding? What, what is front of mind for you and what advice do you have for people out there who are trying to navigate that right now? We were talking earlier about sort of the trailblazers and the, and the you know, just the developer ecosystem and, and what exists here at this event. It, it makes me think a lot about just what happens in a WordPress ecosystem standpoint, because from, from our perspective on WordPress VIP, it's software that's, you can go right now, you can look at all the source code that makes this thing work. And in fact, many people's story in our space comes from like, well, I opened it up and I just started stepping into like making it do a bit more and like, and now I'm a developer and I never would have been a developer. Just if I had user just, discovery, yeah, just messing around. You know, just that hacker mentality on that, mm -hmm. uh, on that sort of thing. And it's so, it's like, it's, so what I like to think about is like, how do we take those nuggets and say like, here's something that allows somebody to sort of grow their own skills and competency into the platform. How can we take that and and really enable folks to harness their own skills. When we look at it from an enterprise concept a construct, we've got a really interesting spectrum that we get to work across, which is we're uh, building products that are focused on enterprise use cases. So like, what are we doing from product development? And we have, you know, development and product teams focused on that. And then what are we doing for 
in support of our own customers, which is often like we're supporting our own customers, developers. And there's a myriad of challenges that come along with that. And we can take folks of varied skills and, and allow them to focus on different opportunities that we have across product and the support of our customers. Because it's really interesting. What we get to look at is sort of how our own customers, like a Capgemini, see themselves in, in WordPress. And then we can actually get in the code with them and we can look at what they're doing. And so we're really able to collaborate bring, on it. Yeah. So we're able to bring in people that either through internships or other aspects of this, where we're like saying, hey, you can come in. We'll give you access to things happening at a massive global scale, uh, give you exposure to things that areas where you will be able to uh, contribute on the short term, as well as give you such a path to where you're like really, you know, developing yourself along the way. And not just expecting that folks come in with like a certain high level of competency and everything else. Like part of this is just like giving back to this broader community, right? And saying like, how can we help develop folks, up-level their skills in this? You know, how can we empower that? Support the that? next generation. Yeah, totally. Yes, absolutely. Because that's really where, in my mind, like when we look at how are we building out more diverse teams, it's going in and like investing in the underrepresented like parts mm -hmm. to say like, let's bring people into this. Let's not mm -hmm. find the people that, have already had the opportunity to really like hone that craft. Like, yes, that's beneficial, but we can do so much more than that by bringing people up and investing in that. That was Nick Gernert, the CEO of WordPress VIP. To find out more, you can visit WPVIP.com. And now back to Gretchen and Ellen. Let's go back to the day that you jumped off the cliff. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I know there's not a lot you can, you can tell us, but there is quite a bit that you can tell us about that day behind the scenes. It's July 6th. You filed your case, jumped off the cliff all alone. By Labor Day was the day your settlement was announced. Mm -hmm. Ta take us back to that time. How did your family respond? How did your friends respond? How did your peers respond? Mm -hmm. Please. Well, courage is not like turning on a light switch when you walk into a room. Um, this is not something I decided to do the night before. Right. You know, this took years of finding the courage because, again, this was not something a lot of women were, were doing. But first of all, I got the support of my parents, who I'm still blessed to have in my life. And no matter how old we get, it's always great to know that your parents are behind you. Listen, growing up in Minnesota, we don't sue a lot of people. So, you know, there's this Minnesota nice thing. And so it was just really, really important to me that they were supportive. I couldn't really tell anyone. My husband knew, of course. Right. Um, but that was it, besides my lawyers. I told my children the night before. Um, the very first thing my then 11-year-old son said to me is, what's going to happen to our babysitter? <laughs> I told him, mommy got fired. You know, mommy got fired. And he was, and I'm like, I'm really concerned about her too. But what about mommy? <laughs> but right. anyway, um, uh, so we told them the night, the night before. And then... You know, I stayed up incredibly late with my husband that night, and I just remember being in the kitchen, and he looked at me and said, I really think they underestimated you. And we had no idea what to expect. I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen the next moment. And I just finally decided I was going through with it. And so I went to my lawyer's house, and we had a whole team of people there, and we waited for the news to start trickling out. And sure enough, it did, you know. And then we waited for a response from Fox, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. And then about 6 p.m. that night, it flashed across the screen on the television that they were going to start an investigation. That, that was huge. That was huge. I mean, we could have never, ever predicted that. And, um, and then every day was just surreal, you know, 
after that, um, more women came forward. And even if they only told 10% of whatever their truth was, it yeah. was enough. Yeah. And um, finally, on to September 6th, uh, where they announced that they had, um, you know, settled, settled my deal. But the most important th thing to me, Alan, I was sharing this with you backstage, was, was how the media perceived that settlement. Yeah. Because the most important thing to me was to get an apology. And that really never happens in a settlement case because right. some people might argue that's an admission of guilt. Right. And I was sitting, it was the first day of school, and my husband and I used to always drop off our children and then we'd go into the city, New York City, to work together. Well, of course, I had been fired, but I still was going to go into the city with him and I had some appointments. And I was early, so I went into the nail salon and nobody in New York City is getting their nails done at 9 a.m. So I was in there by myself and the news started coming out early. Yeah. And I'm bawling my eyes out. And I was crying because almost every media outlet picked up on the apology. Yeah. The headline was, Gretchen Carlson receives a public apology for what happened to her. And I've come to find out that that's all women want. They want to have that acknowledgement that they were treated like crap. And that in so many cases, their careers were derailed. Yep. And they just want somebody to know what really happened and for somebody to say, I'm sorry. And so that was just incredibly important to me. And I've seen so many women who never get that apology and it stays with them for their whole life as they hope for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I also want a check, actually. <laughs> In addition to the apology, I also want the money. Yeah. And, I, and I say that not to be flip, just to, just to share this story. I saw my, my, my attacker, I don't even put the company that I worked for on my LinkedIn. That's the level of just PTSD. Weird. I know. Mm -hmm. And I saw him on a plane. He was the CEO of this. Wow. He was everybody's boss. And I saw him on a plane sitting in the middle seat in coach. <laughs> Touche. That was as close to getting a check as I will ever get. <laughs> but um, I, I, they eliminated my job, and he got a big settlement to leave the company. Of course. And he, he assaulted me in the back of a cab, and uh, the taxi driver kept the meter running. Huh. Then he left, and I paid the cab, and I expensed my own assault the next day. Oh, my gosh. These are the kinds of stories that you are collecting. Yes. And that happened to me also in my early 20s, stories that I never told anyone for 25 years until I wrote my memoir, which was two years before my, my lawsuit. Right. And they happened both within three weeks, both in cars, um, similar situations. And as women, we're socialized to sort of push these things that happened to us way back somewhere into our brains and never acknowledge it and never talk about it and never actually call it what it is. So for 25 years, I never called it assault. No, I didn't either. Yeah, it was when I was writing my book, Be Fierce, that I was interviewing Natasha Stoinoff, who was one of Trump's uh, alleged victims. And I was telling her these stories that had happened to me in my 20s. She goes, well, you realize that was assault, right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, what happened to you when he grabbed your neck and shoved your head into his crotch and you couldn't breathe? That's assault. It is. And it was so revolutionary for me because this was after everything that happened to me at Fox. And I still wasn't calling those first things assault. Yeah. This is how we're socialized, as women especially, to, to push these things way, way down. We call it the cost of doing business. Yeah. That's well, that's what, what I'm trying to change. I know you are. <laughs>
I know you are. You're still operating under the NDA. Can you tell us any, is there any insight you can give us into the process of fighting that? Yes, so that's my next fight now. Um, after the, uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Ronan Farrow book that came out about NBC, Catch and Kill, but then NBC maybe a month ago or so said that they would supposedly allow women who had signed NDAs there to be able to be released from them. So a group of us at Fox who had signed NDAs got together over the weekend and uh, we have demanded to be let out of our NDAs as well. And we will see if we get a response. You know, listen, as long as, as long as we continue to silence women on this issue, we're never gonna solve it. And I'm so proud that New Jersey has actually passed a law now that does, does not allow you to force any woman or man to sign an NDA with regard to sexual harassment. Um, so um, stay tuned, in the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna be announcing a major initiative. Um, so there, there's more fight going on. All right, no, I have no doubt, no, no doubt. So maybe we could talk about some of your advice because you've really um, become an expert. And I, I appreciate the grace with which you have embraced the role that has been handed to you. You could have, as I mentioned in my intro, you could have done anything with this. But you have chosen, you have chosen to fight. I think it's incredibly admirable. Thank you. So what have you learned? What do we need to do as companies to make a difference? A lot. Um, it really starts at the top. And I always say, you know, the buck stops there. So leaders need to be open um, with their employees and say the buck stops with me and I'm not gonna tolerate this. Um, and as long as most Fortune 500 companies are still run by men, that's gonna be up to a man to make that determination. Men named John. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. James and John. Yes. Uh, um, they're going to have to say the buck stops with me. And I'm actually going to support and celebrate people who come forward saying that this is happening to them because I don't want this in my workplace. That changes the dynamic of this thing completely 180 degrees because right now what still tends to happen, although it's getting better, is that the woman goes to complain and the first reaction is, how the hell do we get rid of her? She's a troublemaker. Right. How do we save this harasser? And trust me, it can be low-level people too. It's not always the money makers. It's so embedded in our culture to protect the harasser. So um, that would be my first piece of advice to the people running the company. Also, um, you should not force women to have to go to HR to report these cases because HR is not your friend, I'm sorry to say. There's a lot of great people working in HR, but they, their job is to protect the company. So I've been advocating for having independent ombudsmen um, that you would have come in from the outside to handle these cases to really be able to do a fair investigation. Um, in fact, right after my talk now, there's gonna be a Democratic debate in Atlanta and four um, people running for president have signed a letter asking NBC to have an outside investigation to really get to the heart of the matter of what happened to women there. So, you know, being bold enough to have outside people come in and look introspectively at your company to make sure you're doing the right things. You know, that takes, that takes guts. Listen, they've been putting arbitration clauses in your contracts because they want to cover their dirty laundry. That's the whole point of this, to keep it silent. Yeah. So to be brave, that's really being a leader, like Mark Benioff. I mean, that, that is really being a brave leader and not approaching this issue like it's a passing fad that's just gonna go away over the next couple of months? No, we're gonna make sure it's not gonna go away and 
I would just advocate for leaders to be brave and proactive yeah. um, instead of waiting to be forced to do things. This, this, and they should read your book. Well, yes, of course. Well, chapter four, as I said, is my playbook. Yeah. So especially for women, I always say you should just rip that chapter out and put it in your back pocket. <laughs> um, it has the 12 points of everything you can do, mainly because as women, we're, we're socialized to keep beating our head against the brick wall because we think, oh my gosh, they're finally going to respect me for how smart I am. And they're going to give me that promotion and they're going to stop harassing me, right? It's never going to happen. No. And so then we finally deal with it, deal with it, and then one day we combust and we go complain. But here's the problem. We don't have a plan. And once you let the genie out of the bottle and complain and you don't have a plan, right. it's a big problem because you probably haven't gathered evidence. You probably haven't told enough witnesses. Um, and, and those are all things that you need to assemble. So, yes, Chapter 4 is, is my plan for, for women. I think it's really the first time that it's, it's been put together in that way for you to be able to have that as a resource. So you also mentioned the Google walkout. And so we should also talk about the power of the employee, not necessarily to rally around a single issue or a single incident, but to begin to force culture change or to have these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. What have you learned um, observing that dynamic, because I think it's really important, especially as younger workers move into the workforce. So one of my favorite quotes over the last three years, um, I gravitate to, to inspirational messages, happens to be anonymous, but it goes like this. One woman can make a difference, but together we rock the world. And the we can applaud that. Um, the Google walkout is emblematic of that. You know, it was one woman's brainchild, and it turned into an international day. And it wasn't just women, it was men. And to me, that showed the power of one voice, but the incredible power of when everyone comes together. And so when young people ask me, what can we do within our own workplaces to make it better for us? You know, it's, it's like, okay, the spark can be with one person, but just get a small group of you together and go to HR and say, we don't want arbitration clauses in our employment contracts anymore, right? right? It's about knowing that you have that power within you as an employee to, to make a difference. You don't have to sit back and, and be silent about it. Um, so that, that, that's my recommendation. And if you have a story, come forward now, because if there's ever been a moment in time when the media is actually paying attention to this issue, mm-hmm. it's now. You and I both know yes. that if I would have said three years ago, there are going to be teams of reporters at magazines and newspaper outlets that are going to devote, you know, devote yeah. people just to the issue of sexual harassment, they would have laughed at us. I know, I know. Because the media wasn't covering these stories. But it's one of the, the biggest reasons why this, what I like to call cultural revolution, has continued is because the media started paying attention to these stories. Yeah. Powerful people, powerful men are dangerous. I think um, this, this was also an unusual confluence of events, both Mr. Ailes and Harvey Weinstein. Not only did damage to the culture of their organizations, they did damage to the broader culture too. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it becomes a bigger conversation about what does media look like? What does an inclusive media look like? What does inclusive storytelling look like? What does inclusive entertainment look like? What stories aren't being told that will just make the culture better? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was something that we could actually rally behind. I'm not sure we could do the same thing if it was a medical device manufacturer. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes. 
and also, you know, social media, as much as I don't like it for my kids, really played in, in yeah. this in a positive way because women and men felt the ability to come forward either anonymously or putting their name and face on it. And it just mushroomed, right? The floodgates, I always say the floodgates truly opened after the Harvey Weinstein allegations because so many people came forward and said, me too. And it, it made us realize, again, how pervasive yeah. um, the whole situation is. I thought a beautiful thing about the Me Too movement was the, the first thing the beautiful and the powerful Me Too storytellers did was reach out to agricultural workers, hospitality workers, and make it about a bigger intersectional sisterhood, mm-hmm. which I thought was really beautiful. And it's why I started the Gretchen Carlson Leadership Initiative, because one of the first and almost everyday question that I received in the first year after my case was, well, you may have had the means and the national platform to get your case out there and hire good lawyers, but what about the single mom who's raising her kids and working three jobs and is also being harassed? She literally can't afford to come forward. And that question really pained me because I didn't necessarily have a great answer for it. Right. And so I created the Gift of Courage Fund, and I give grants to organizations that empower girls and boys. But then I also created through that the Gretchen Carlson Leadership Initiative for underprivileged women across our country. We have done 13 cities as part of a tour where they can come to the workshops to get legal advice on harassment. They can come for free and they can bring their children. We provide babysitting and we provide food. And Look at you. they leave um, completely empowered. So it's my, my you know, small way you. to help women who don't have the resources. You know, and so, and you and I also both know, probably you better than me, that so many of the reasons why women don't have these resources outside of sexual harassment in the workplace is, is systemic. It's policy stuff. It's, there's, there's a reason why there's not safe places to play. There's reasons why there's not, um, the, there's food deserts, why people have to work two, three jobs and still not make ends meet. Have you ever thought about running for politics, <laughs> running for office? Uh, I actually was at, asked to run for Senate in Connecticut two years ago. It was not part of my plan then. at that point in time. Listen, I've been a registered independent my whole life. Um, I would never say no to any opportunity because as we've been talking about, my life has worked in really weird ways. Um, and I'm always open to a challenge, but I really think we need to fund an That's independent That's not a hard no. no. That is not, not a hard no, no at all. But, I, but it has a caveat. I think we need to fund independent candidates uh, because until we really get true financing behind them, they're, they're not going to be able to, to... I have a little bit stopped listening, but no, though I think, but Connecticut is manageable. I went to Brantford High School, proud graduate. I worked my way right up the coast and right back down to New York. Okay. Now I live in Tornado Alley in St. Louis. Now I'm here. <laughs> But Connecticut is manageable. Connecticut would be great for you, yeah. if I may say. Okay. Well, some people wanted me to go home to Minnesota to run for governor, but the thing is, I OD'd on so winters. I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> no, oh, I, I OD'd on winters, so I don't know if I... I love Minnesota. I bring my kids there in August. Um, but, you know, listen, I am not the type of person that says no to opportunity, and so I don't know. You know, it's not in the cards for me right now, mm-hmm. but... Um, I've already been dragged through the mud, so I think I've, I've yeah, I faced think, that part of it. I think you're ready. We know a lot about you, and Nicole Kidman can also stump for you, <laughs> which I think would be very entertaining. I'm sure she'd be willing yeah, to Yeah, how do surreal it. is that to have Nicole, Nicole Kidman, um, you and, know, and in you a movie? And you can't even weigh and in. And I can't weigh in. No, that's because of my NDA. So it's strange and frustrating to have your life portrayed, especially with such a sensitive subject matter. I know. And something so personal. And so there's going to be tons of liberties. Um, with the storyline. But I have to take 
the big picture outlook on this. Yes. And the big picture outlook on, on this movie we're talking about, Bombshell, which comes out in December, is that it's continuing the conversation about this issue. And by the way, they would have never done a movie on this issue as well three years ago. So we've come a long way. And if one woman finds the courage from going to this movie to come forward, then it's, it's worth it to me, whether or not there are tons of liberties in the script or not. All right, but so we do need to work on campaign finance reform. Like that's yes. not now on my to-do list. Yes, thank you. Okay, okay I'll All help right. you. All right. What do you have a plan? No, not yet. But <laughs> I'll, I'll help you come up with one. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I do want to hit um, some advice points. We are hearing reports, and I hear about this a lot, uh, of an insidious backlash in the workplace where men are now worried about. Um, giving women feedback, mentoring women, having professional dinners, all those kinds of things. And of course, this is the terrible flip side of too much power is that once once an, uh, an executive exits your life, then you're not going to get the kinds of development that you need to go to proceed in your career. Have you heard this? And what's your best advice to help organizations encourage men to get past their resistance? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a total cop-out. I mean, listen, men know when they're acting appropriately or not. And you sort of know when you're raping yes. someone. Yes, you know. Uh, our, our own vice president actually put it out there that maybe men shouldn't go to lunches or dinners with women, you know, solo as, as a work thing, which just was really detrimental because women are already facing, yep. you know, discrimination. And then to take, take you out of the cycle of doing business just because men can't keep it together... Um, you know, that is sort of a ridiculous sentiment. But I'm also sort of upset at, the, at our own career path, which is the media, because yeah. I think there were one or two articles about this possible backlash. And then it's like it's God's word. Why is the media covering that in the same way in which the media, after a titan falls, within three weeks, I'll be sitting at home and I'll look up at the screen and the, the Chiron, you know, going on the bottom. It will be like, when is Bill O'Reilly coming back? You know, when is Matt Lauer making his comeback? And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like, we, we talk about redemption for these people immediately. This is how embedded this is in our culture, right. without even thinking. Right. In the newsrooms, they're talking right. about when are they making their comebacks. What that should say on the Chiron is, when are all the women who've been wronged for simply coming forward and being courageous, when are they coming back? Right. They're not coming back. Right. Well... We're going to work to make sure they do. So we, we are almost out of time. You have um, a beautiful mantra that you created. And I was wondering if you could take us out by, yeah. by reading it. Did you have your copy with you? Yeah. Look at you. I Look brought at it. You. you gave me a little heads up. All right. I guess I did. Yeah. So this is um, at the start of Chapter 4 in my book, Be Fierce. And this is, I think, a really good thing to read to yourself every single day. It goes like this. I have a right to fulfill my dreams. I have a right to pursue any career I choose. I have a right to excel without malicious interference. I have a right to be treated with respect in my professional and personal lives. I have a right to not be touched unless I want to be touched. I have a right to work in an environment free of visuals that demean and objectify women. I have a right to not be stalked. I have a right to be called by my name, not diminutive nicknames. I have a right to work without hearing comments about my body or appearance. I have a right to not be pestered for dates when I make it clear that I have no interest. 
I have a right to advance up the ladder based on my hard work and abilities. I have a right to speak out without fear of retaliation or intimidation when I am demeaned, harassed, or assaulted. I have a right to be myself, not be defined by stereotypes. Gretchen, thank you so much. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for having this conversation. And please let us know how we can support your campaign. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. That was Gretchen Carlson and Ellen McGirt at Dreamforce 2019. Going back to the beginning of our session, it's so important to think of this as an issue that affects all of us, not just women and girls, but also men and boys, and how we raise the next generation of men to treat their future women coworkers with respect. And if we can all come together in this, that's when we're going to see real change. If you enjoyed this conversation and want more like it, be sure to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. That does it for another episode of Blazing Trails. Thank you for listening. And thank you to WordPress VIP for presenting this show with us. We'll be back next week with more conversations like this. Blazing Trails is a production of Salesforce, a customer relationship management solution committed to helping you deliver the personalized experiences customers want. So they'll keep coming back again and again. Salesforce, bringing companies and customers together. Visit salesforce.com slash learn more.